Welcome to the Everyday Innovator Podcast for product managers, leaders, and innovators. Your host is Chad McAllister, helping you become a product master. Listen and get ready for higher performance, for the doctor is in. Hi, this is Chad, and this is where product leaders and managers become product masters. That's been our purpose here from the very beginning of this podcast six years ago, and it is the reason why I'm changing the name now to Product Masters Now. It reflects our real purpose, helping you become a product master. You don't need to do anything different to keep listening, but I want you to know the name change is coming, and it might show up differently in your podcast player. The logo stays essentially the same, but because the name is going from starting with the letter E, Everyday Innovator, to the letter P, Product Masters Now, it probably shows up lower on the list under you know rest of the P sort of podcast names. So I just want you to know that that change is coming, Product Masters Now. Now, what about this episode? Well, to be a better product manager, it is worthwhile to examine organizations known for their product management capabilities. Amazon is such a company. In this episode, we are joined by not one, but two product professionals who built much of their career at Amazon, 13 and 15 years worth of their career. They're Colin Beyer and Bill Carr. They document the process Amazon uses to create successful products in a book titled Working Backwards. Insights, stories, and secrets from inside Amazon. And they are here to share their insights with us. And remember, we take notes for you. If you want to go back to anything you hear or have an easy way of sharing this with colleagues, just go to theeverydayinnovator.com slash 323. You'll also find a one-page action guide there to help you put the ideas, the insights into action immediately. Now, let's talk with Colin and Bill. Colin and Bill, thank you so much for joining the Everyday Innovator podcast. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. Delighted to hear about your experiences there at Amazon and and what you've done with those experiences since then. You've learned a great deal about what makes Amazon innovative. And I was curious about that because I I had a colleague go to Amazon a couple of years ago who he left a company where he was leading, helping companies become more innovative, right? So he knows a lot about innovation. He got to Amazon and he shared with me a a few months after being there. He said, this is the most innovative company I've ever encountered. And from his position, that kind of meant a lot, right? (laughs) Since he has, that's what he helps companies with. What do you think makes Amazon live up to that reputation, right? Being so innovative. So I I think it's more than one thing, first of all. And Amazon has 14 leadership principles. And those are really just woven into the DNA of everyone who works there and in the company and every process. There are probably, I mean, six or so that directly are related to to innovation. One of them is customer obsession. So people wake up every day trying to figure out how can I delight my customers? You know, and that really just helps set the, the context. There's a leadership principle called invent and simplify. And it says leaders are expected and require invention and innovation and always are finding ways to get better. There's another one about an Amazon leadership principle called our right a lot. And part of that phrase below it, it says that leaders are people, they seek diverse uh, perspectives and try to prove themselves or discom- wrong or disconfirm their beliefs to make sure that they have the right thought. So everyone's always looking at, I have my opinion or what you know could even be a well-formed opinion right now, but is there a better way to do it? Same thing with insistent highest standards. You know, how can you get better next? Are we better going to get better next week than we were last week? And and how can we continually do that? And then the last leadership principle that's related to in, innovation is really frugality. So, you know, constraints 
do breed uh, innovation. And it went, if you have a box where some things you can't change, sometimes you have to innovate your way out of the box. So I think first and foremost, the, the leadership principles really do set the context for innovation is just a necessary part of, of your job. There are a couple other things. One is just necessity. Amazon does things at a, at a scale that often there aren't any commercial solutions available or that you're operating at or ab- above the tolerances of commercial software. So, you know, if you want to do something at scale and there's nothing out there, you actually have to create someone, something. And then finally, just Amazon really accepts failure as, as part of, of invention. So if you're not failing enough, you're not inventing enough. And Amazon does use failure, invention and failure as learning experiences. So some of the bigger failures that Amazon had there are actually great learnings that came from from those failures and were incorporated into other products or features. Yeah, well, Colin touched on it out of necessity. So if you think about it, you know, back when Colin and I started working at the company in 1998 and 99, respectively, we were, you know, Amazon was only an e-commerce business. And, you know, at that point, if you thought about trying to hire someone new to the company, if you'd had the requirement that they have five years of e-commerce experience, you would have never hired anyone because there was no one who had five years of e-commerce experience. In other words, we were we were inventing a whole new form of commerce from the beginning. So if you weren't oriented from the very beginning to think about, okay, well, I, we don't know the answers for how e-commerce works. And if you didn't find that, that, the, that an exciting and fun to sort of think about that we, our job is to figure it out and to invent it, then you weren't going to really fit, fit in very well at Amazon. And so those who did would thrive because really every day of your job was about inventing something new because e-commerce simply didn't exist. Yeah. So it, it called for a special kind of breed of people, right? People that, that enjoyed doing something new and being part of that wave. Yeah. And as the, and as the company progressed, we, you know, that mindset pervaded the company and that's really what drove the company then to, 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 you know, move outside of e-commerce and start inventing other things like cloud computing and digital devices. Maybe I'll add just one more thing to that is that some of the raw materials that make Amazon tick and Amazon successful get cheaper o- over time. So compute power, storage, bandwidth. It, it, you know, it storage every, you know, five years in five years, you get about 32 times the storage for the same price. So the, at Amazon, you don't say, how can we just take those savings and put it to the bottom line? Because they're a relatively small percentage of Amazon's overall cost. You ask yourself, well, five years from now, storage, we can, we can have the same amount of storage five years from now. 32 times the storage five years from now. So what are we going to do with that? And you invent different things like search it, let's scan every book and store every word in every book that's ever been created. And so, you know, just that inventive spirit pops out in, in a, a number of different areas of the, the company. Yeah, that's a good example. And watching those trends and making use of them as they're coming, knowing what's coming next. The customer obsession ones, one point I want to go back to, you know, it's been written about that Jeff Bezos would leave a chair empty in meetings to represent the customer. I, I don't know if true or not, assume it is, but how did that, how did you see that take place during your time there to really be obsessed with delighting the customer? Well, there are a number of ways. And one of the things that was most remarkable about what <clears throat> Jeff and Amazon achieved was 
figuring out how to take that principle of customer obsession and create a number of reinforcing processes to make it actually part of people's jobs to do it. So one simple example of that was that there was a section of, of the weekly business review meeting called Voice of the Customer. And in those meetings, someone, one of the leaders of the customer service group would bring forward a problem that a customer had where Amazon didn't have a very, very good solution for it. And in other words, we would then look at that problem and the senior leadership of the company would be aware of it and people would be assigned to go and tackle that problem to figure out what's a scalable solution to make sure that this problem never happens again. And in fact, there were other processes called, one process called the, the COE process, whereby anytime there was some sort of defect or, or issue, teams were tasked with diving deeply into the details of why this defect occurred, why did the customer have this problem, and reporting back with their detailed plan for how they were going to get to the root cause of the problem and fixing it. And this is unusual. So it's not really actually very fun to spend your time on things that are working poorly with your business. It's not very good for one's ego. And it's not something that in most companies people seek out. So the, by coming up with programmatic methods to actually have managers and leaders of the company programmatically seek out problems and then seek out solutions was one of the ways in which Amazon did this. There are many others, and Colin can speak to some of those too. Colin, anything you wish to add? Okay, let's move on. Great. Thank you, Bill, very much for sharing that. It's something that we value on this podcast is how do we create products that delight customers? And putting the customer at the center of, of our work is important. So I wanted to ask about that. I'm taking a quick break to address a question that I get asked sometimes, which is, how can I keep doing this podcast? As they know that it takes time and money. Basically, they're asking, how does this podcast pay for itself? If you're a longtime listener, you know that I started this podcast to have these valuable discussions with fascinating people and to share those insights that they share with you and the product management community. Over time, listeners contacted me about how else I could help them, so I started answering that question during each episode, which is what I'm going to do now. How else I can help you, which is also how I pay for this podcast, is through the training that I offer. Individual product managers will find self-paced options available to accelerate your path to product master. They are aligned with professional certification, and you'll find the details at theeverydayinnovator.com slash certification. For groups, I provide the groundbreaking RPM experience, the Rapid Product Mastery Experience, which is designed as a virtual system that meets 75 minutes a week for nine weeks, resulting in high-performing product teams and product managers. It is a unique experience, creating actual behavior change that goes beyond learning and really does create higher performance. If you have a group of product professionals or a product team, you need the RPM experience. Get details at theeverydayinnovator.com slash RPM. Now, let's get more insights from Bill and Colin. When it comes to who's responsible for innovation, organizations deal with that differently. What's the answer for Amazon? Who's responsible for innovation at Amazon? I mean, it is everyone. And, you know, innovation, it's the lifeblood of the company. So it would be weird to have a chief innovation officer at Amazon. And it'd be like having a chief breathing officer. You know, everyone has to breathe. So you don't have, you don't want to see that task to um, one person or a group. So, and also we found that 
over time, the best innovations come with people who are closest to working with the problems at, at hand. It's not from a different group to look in or a management team that is several levels removed to say, here's how you're going to innovate in your area for the next 12 months. So a lot of these innovations are small innovations, essentially that customers never see, but they they actually make Amazon work more efficiently, allow Amazon to lower prices, get goods to customers quicker. You on the AWS side, they they constantly scour for are people using the services in the most efficient manner. If not, how can we you know lower prices for for the AWS customers? So it is everyone is expected to innovate, and I, you're not going to find a chief innovation officer at at Amazon anytime soon. Yeah, and as you talked about the rules before, I can see where that just comes into play, right? Trying to make things simpler as as you go, looking for trends and how to use the changes that are coming in technology, having the customer at the middle of that, solving problems for them. Bill, what, what were you going to add? I would add that the other thing that's notable is in a lot of companies, people think about innovation as a product function. And in fact, at Amazon, it really it was it was a job for everyone. It didn't matter what your functional area was. For example, I had a role in the early 2000s where I was working with our, our suppliers and uh, a program for how we would get them to support us with co-marketing funds. And I remember being pretty proud of the results I had delivered in the previous year. And I put forth a plan to my manager that showed, you know, the the growth of the uh, plan for the next year of say 10 or 15% growth versus the prior year. And he said, Bill, what is the plan you have to innovate and, and try to do some stepwise change for this plan? And I was baffled by this because I said, no, I don't you understand last year I created this program. It didn't exist before. And now, now we have it. And so now it'll just grow by, you know, sort of 10 or 15% a year. And he, he pointed out to me that I really wasn't doing my job if I wasn't trying to create at least one well thought out, but potentially risky new innovation for how this pr- program should work each year. And so innovation is not just the, the, the province of the product organization, Amazon, it's, it's, it's all functional areas. Yep. Part of the, the lifeblood, the culture there. And Amazon does celebrate innovation too, in, in a bunch of different ways. There are Things where there are awards you can get if you find out ways to cut cost out of part of the, the system or you go above and beyond, you know, serving a, a customer and their puzzle pieces that you get if you file for a patent and another puzzle piece you get if that patent is issued. And some of those awards, you know, there's no monetary value, but they are some of the most prized possessions that people at Amazon have. And, you know, it's not as if they're bragging when they're they're showing them they're just so proud and excited that here and you have a conversation. Well, how did you get this DoorDesk award or, how, you know, or I see there's a new puzzle piece. What you know, what was what was the patent that you applied for? So it's just it's it's something that everyone is expected to do. Everyone celebrates and, and recognizes it. So it's 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 quite the thing to see and experience. Yeah, truly tr- really embedded in the culture. Well, I'm curious, just describe one of those awards for us, the, the puzzle piece, or uh, w- what is this thing physically that one can receive? So it's a molded puzzle piece, and uh, 
Big. One right here in in the background, but but you you once you apply and you you get the patent application accepted, you know the patent office moves a little slower than 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 the Amazon speed, but you you'll get the legal department will say, hey, your application has been approved, and you get a puzzle piece on your desk. You know, usually anywhere from a couple of months to sometimes a couple of years later, and then sometimes you'll find out well, this patent was finally issued. And you get, and they all connect to one another. So you see that different people arrange them in different ways in, in their office, on their wall, or in, in innovative ways, quite honestly. And, uh, you know, DoorDesk is, it's just a mini DoorDesk, which is everyone at Amazon has a desk built out of a door and four, four by fours and, and, and a couple of, of, of brackets. And um, so you get a little mini DoorDesk. That's great. Yeah, a good way to, to recognize in tangible form for yourself and others to see, too, what uh, what your contributions to innovation were. Okay, so both of you have this book that you've put together, many of your insights that we're talking about, about what it is like to innovate at Amazon, called Working Backwards, Insight Stories and Secrets from Inside Amazon. And I want to talk about you know the core theme of that book and one that has been written about in other places, but great to hear from the both of you as insiders with such a long history there at Amazon, what it really means to work backwards. What is this methodology and how does it lead to advancements in the organization? And I'll just leave it to you to start where we should start with the working backwards methodology. Yeah, so working backwards is not just, we, we named the book after it because it's one of the distinctive and peculiar ways uh, that Amazon goes about developing new products and services. So simply put, what it means is that you start with the customer needs and you work backwards from there. And this is, sounds very simple and sounds like, oh, well, I'm sure everyone does it that way. But in fact, most people, uh, most companies take what's called a skills forward approach, which is they may look at what they're good at today. And for example, back in 2003, 2004, what Amazon was good at was e-commerce. And in those early days of 2004, we started to think about how we could build digital media products for customers based on the early success of services like Napster and the iPod and, and Apple. And we started to set our sights on building an ebook, a, ser a service, and thinking about how would that work. <clears throat> and if we would taken a sort of a skills forward approach, we would have we would have looked at oh well here's how our e-commerce site works today and we'll make this extension of it and but instead we actually we we took a customer facing working backwards approach and we started with well what what would you know the ebook category doesn't really exist today what's lacking here what would the customer need to actually uh, want to read ebooks <clears throat> and we started to think about what we call invention on behalf of the customer. And when you get into invention on behalf of the customer, you're, you're doing, you know, the quote, I think it was Henry Ford that says that if you ask customers, you know, prior to the automobile, what do they want? They say they want a faster horse. What they couldn't articulate is they want a, a vehicle with a, you know, combustion engine that, and four wheels that can drive them around. And so the ebook was sort of in a similar state. And so instead, what, what, you, what we did was we started with the customer and say, well, what would the customer actually need? They would need it to be a device that, where they could carry around their books. It would be a device that wouldn't run out of, have a good battery life, a device where they could read outside. And the, the paper, it was paper-like reading experience, a device where you could always be connected to the store to get more books or download more books. Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. 
And we, what we did is we came up with a way, a method of, of a scalable, repeatable process whereby teams could then come up with these concepts, which we called the PRFAQ process. And that stands for the press release and frequently asked questions. So as we were developing, you know, the Kindle, what we, what we figured out over time was what we needed to do was to write the press release first, which is normally at the end of the process, right? When you're developing a new product, like after you've figured it out, after you've written the software or built the thing, and after you've manufactured it, then you go to the marketing department and you say, okay, let's write the press release to figure out sort of how we're going to sell this thing. And instead, we're sort of, we said, well, let's, let's, start, let's work backwards from there. Let's start with the press release, which is normally at the end of the process. And the reason to start with the press release is that if you can write down in the press release and describe this product, and, and it sounds like something that people are going to jump out of their chair to actually go buy, then, then you've got something. And, but if you've written it down in the press release and it doesn't sound that exciting, it doesn't sound like there, it's better, faster, or cheaper than what else the customer can do, then it's probably not worth building this thing. And so, so through a process of trial and error, Amazon developed this PRFAQ process. And the FAQ part of the process is where you, after you've described what this ideal product could be, you then describe, okay, well, what are all the different hard problems I'm going to have to solve to actually build this product? In the case of Amazon back in the early 2000s when, when conceiving of Kindle, well, we didn't have a team that made devices. We, didn't, we, we, were, we were an e-commerce company, as an example, or we didn't know how we could make the device always connected to the internet, or we didn't know how we should make the battery life work and how it could hold enough books, all these kinds of problems. So you use the FAQ section to sort of then describe what these challenges are and describe potential solutions. You'd also use the FAQ section to describe, answer questions from a customer point of view, like how much will this device cost and how many books can I hold on it and, and where would I buy the books? But then you'd also use it to answer internal based questions. For example, what would be the pro forma P&L for the business if I made this Amazon Kindle? And how long will it take to build it? And how big of a team am I going to need? And what kind of new skills or new uh, capabilities will we need to hire or acquire in order to, to make this new item a reality. And so the whole point is you set aside sort of what skills you have today. You focus purely on what does the customer need? And hopefully then by doing that and focusing on the end of the process, you then work backwards. Very good. So some detail I want to dive into there. Uh, but before the, that, Colin, do you have anything you want to add to step so far? I uh, just, it works for pretty much anything, any product that you want to launch internal or external. So teams use this for very small features or very large businesses or which country should we go into next? So it, it, it is what does have a nice fractal quality to it and it can work for something for a small team as well as should we move into a completely different industry. Okay. So like peeling the onion, you go down to the level of detail that one needs for the problem. Okay. So back in the beginning, you talked about starting with the, the customer need and working backwards from there. So I love the customer focus again. But what are the, the tools or approaches that might be involved in that? You know, when, we, when I think of product, we often talk about ideation as being at one of the early steps, right? We come up with ideas from some collection of sources, which might be the customer, supply chain, our own discoveries, whatever the case is. How does that factor into this? You can have multiple ways to, to get the ideas, but 
where where we found that it, it it really comes best from people who have a deep fundamental understanding of the customer experience and the problem that they are trying to solve. So that more so than market research, focus groups, you know, those things can, you can verify some of your hypotheses with that, but you, it really has to come from, we, here's the customer problem we are going to solve. Here's a unique spin that we're going to put on in order to solve it for, for customers. And this is an iterative process. Very few, if any, products get the green light on the first try in the PRFAQ process. So, you know, a group of people then read the the, the press release and the fact, and they you may find out, oh, we missed two or three things that we hadn't thought of that we're going to have to solve. We need to go back. Or we don't quite have the customer value proposition right, or, you know, as Bill alluded to earlier. It's not exciting or it's not big enough to be worth doing. That could be another thing. So, uh, you know, some ideas don't get the green light just because it's not going to have a big enough impact. It's not that they're bad ideas. So it sounds like the the PRFAQ process is kind of these two big pieces that the first part is a, I think, positioned as an enticing description of this product or service, the new capability, right? Something that you would want to show up in a a press release and that people would be excited about. Fair? Correct. Yes. Yeah. if after you if after you've read the press release, you're not saying, "Wow, I you know the customer would really want this. This would be awesome." Then there's no point even reading to the next part. So you know that's that's the first test, and then the FAQ part is the test to say, "Okay, now that you've described something that's so amazing, tell me about how it can actually really happen, and how feasible it is, and what what kind of capital requirements there are, and all of these things." Because there are many instances where you know, for example, in a role I had uh, post Amazon, where we went through this exercise, we identified, you know, you, you want to have your teams develop multiple PRFAQs for multiple different ideas and let these, let these all and review them all as a team to figure out which one is the, which ones are the best ones that are worth doing. Sometimes you read one where the PR part, maybe this is the best one or this is the most exciting product. But then as you delve into the details, you may find some reason why there is a structural problem that will, that will prevent you from actually achieving your goal. That could be a financial issue. It could be a technical issue. It could be a customer issue, all kinds of reasons, a legal issue. But it's very important to sort of bear those, to understand those and flush those out before you start writing code or going down that path. And it's important to, to also, it gets back to everyone is responsible for innovation. It's not only the people or the team who write the PRFAQ, it's the people who read and comment and make it better. You know, it's the collective people in the room who are now essentially responsible for how are we going to make this the, the best idea, the best innovation to evaluate, and should it go forward from here? So it's not just the team who's writing it, it's, 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 it's more than that. To me, it sounds like that FAQ is could be thought of as a business case for this. Is that fair that that kind of encompasses the business case elements? It's it's both a business case, but it's also a feasibility case. So, for example, let's say we let's go back to the Kindle example, and let's say that the the PR had said, you know, the PR said that it has to have the 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 device needs to be always connected to the internet, and back in you know. 2005, 2006, when this PRFAQ was written, Wi-Fi was not prevalent. And so 
when it was first written, we didn't really know the, well, what's the answer? Like how, how could we solve that problem? And so part of the innovation that Colin's referring to that the group does is then to problem solve that and to brainstorm to say, okay, now that I understand what the product is we need to build, and now that I understand the constraints or challenges, how do we collectively solve those in ways that are economically viable? As part of this, I'm curious if there's a, a pre-mortem type process anyone uses or a tool uses. This is a tool that has got talked about a few places, and Guy Kawasaki talked about it at Apple, where in the very beginning, like your PR, your press release activity, we also take a step where we think about what are all the things that need to go wrong for this thing to go wrong, right? What are the elements that will create this as a failure? Have you seen that used as part of the, this planning process? Well, that would be one. That would be one of the questions in the FAQ that you you would put there. You know, it's it's a FAQ is very flexible tool. You can put any any question that that you want in in there. Okay, excellent. Yeah. Okay, so many other places we could go, but for the sake of time, I want to ask you about experiments in putting this together. This it sounds like a good iterative process to just get a kind of buy-in and sanity checks and, and we're improving it all the time, right? Um, making this better, deciding we're going to go forward. You talked about one of the characteristics of the culture is failure along the way and learning from those. And I always think about that in the context of doing experiments to kind of make that happen, right? Make learning happen. How do experiments fit into innovation at Amazon? Well, I'll tell you one that people don't often see at Amazon. It's how does Amazon itself operate it? operate. And Amazon used a lot of experiments to get to some of these processes that we talk in the book about, you know, hey, you should write the press release and the FAQ in order to develop new products. That idea didn't come out for fully formed. It took a little while to get there. We are some of our meetings are going terrible. They, you know, we were using PowerPoint and slides. And so how can we do better? And, you know, customers never see that. And we so we but but we said, well, let's start to write narratives. And, you know, Increase by an order of magnitude the amount of information that flows in the same per the same unit of time inside a meeting. So, Amazon spent a lot of time and effort in innovating how it can operate. So then it was able to launch a series of really independent businesses across a number of different industries. So, I mean, I, that that would be one way that I think that, and we talk about these in the book that Amazon does experiment. Some of the other experiments, you know, Amazon does a lot of A-B tests on, on the website and, you know, a lot of companies do those. Those are very important and, you know, they get you some local optimization with, you know, what's the best messaging or the, 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 the arrangement of pixels. So, and there's a very robust A-B testing system where teams can plug in and learn. Some of them are Amazon Fresh, which is now rolled out nationally. It took several years and it was just done here in Seattle. And it was, well, if you want to be big in um, retail, you've got to sell food because it's a big you know, portion of overall, overall commerce of what people buy. And we didn't know how to do it. But, you know, we looked at what cust the feedback we got from customers, both anecdotally and, you know, in terms of different customer satisfaction. And I remember Jeff saying, with feedback this good, we have to figure out how to do it. We don't know how to do fresh yet. And this was one or two years into the you know experiment. So sometimes you uh, just experiment in a small geography or and you don't go big until you've actually cracked that nut and, and, and you've solved it. 
And then some experiments are, you know, that may be a failure, but or where you actually learn something. Back in the early 2000s, Amazon did a, a pretty big longitudinal test for advertising for TV and radio, and they did it in two markets. I think it was Minneapolis and, and Portland for about a year. And it, you know, then studied the, the lift and compared it to other cities. And the, the results were it did move the needle, but when you looked at what it would cost to roll it out nationwide, and then you compared it to, you know, that, that would be a fixed cost for Amazon. And, you know, compared to how much revenue they had, it just wasn't worth it. It was too expensive at the time to go do. So Amazon decided to plow all that money back into the customer experience. Fast forward, you know, to about 20 years later. And, you know, in December, I believe Amazon just passed Procter and Gamble as the largest advertiser, and you're know, spending about eleven billion dollars. So, you know, Amazon did learn something from that, ex- you know, experiment. And when it was time, it went back to, you know, to, to to trying to do that. So, those are, I would say, a couple of atypical ones that people may not really see or or, or, or notice about Amazon that come top of mind. Yeah, the, only, the thing I would just add to that is that there's a saying within Amazon that Jeff talks about frequently, which is stubborn on the vision and flexible on the details. And that really is is another way of saying we, we kind of know what the endpoint is, but we don't really know exactly what the product or uh, solution is going to be to get there. And one simple example of that is Amazon Prime. So we knew it didn't take long for us to figure out that one of the biggest barriers to customers to purchasing more frequently from Amazon was that they didn't like paying for shipping. And Amazon went through you know multiple experiments of different promotion, free shipping promotions. A big one that ran for a long time was called Super Saver Shipping, where for every order over $25, your shipping was free. But the speed of that shipment was delayed so that we could afford to do it. And, you know, finally, over time, the, the last experiment, the one that's worked really well, is called Amazon Prime. But people have probably, you know, by now have forgotten about the, all the prior experiments that Amazon did. But that's just a, a simple example of where we were, we were very clear on the vision, which was how can we make, make, remove that friction, that barrier for customers to purchase with respect to shipping costs? How can we make shipping free? But we didn't really know what the right formula was. Yeah, it's, it makes me think of a with my university professor hat on a student who was recently complaining that I think he was in well in a large city where he's used to getting his Amazon shipments the next day on everything, and one came two days. I'm like, and he, you guys have set too much of an expectation apparently here. Uh, it just gets keeps getting better. Wonderful information and many more details in in your book, Working Backwards, which is now available on Amazon for anyone that wants to find that. I'll make sure the link is easy to get to as well in the show notes. As uh, listeners know, we love a good innovation quote around here. What do you have for us? And just kind of describe what that one means to you too. Well, this one came from from Jeff, not surprising Jeff Bezos, not surprisingly, and and he he said we innovate by starting with the customer and working backwards. That becomes the touchstone for how we invent. And you know, as Bill alluded to in the beginning, it sounds simple and easy, but it's really really difficult to to follow and to adhere to. No matter what's happening, no matter if revenue is going up or going down, no matter if it's the end of the quarter where you've got to hit a number or if there's, uh, you know, some things that you need to tidy up in, in your own area of of the business. But really just putting the customer front and center 
and versus, you know, what is the company good at or what are our competitors doing? You know, they're they're way ahead of us or they're about to announce something. You can pay attention to that. You can take that information, but you really need to start front and center with the customer. And what do we need to create to delight the customer for this particular product or service or feature? It's it's we find it's a wonderful way to 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 operate because, you know, customers at the end of the day are the ones who also give you money and trust. And so when you delight them, it, it typically results in a pretty good business decision. Very good. And I love the customer focus throughout the discussion. And if we spend our time, you know, like as you gave examples, the the Kindle, I'm not sure what the exact timeline was, but somewhere in there was the Sony e-reader if it came first. You know, if you look at the competitors models. You're going to make the same mistakes they made, and you're not going to have the opportunity to really advance and delight the customer, right? And focusing on the customer first leads to a better value for the customer. How can people find out uh, more about what went into this this book, into the work that you two are doing now, and uh, maybe reach out to you if they want to? Well, the two best ways are to go go online, and you can pre-order or order our book, Working Backwards, from all kinds of online bookstores, including Amazon. Or you can visit our website at www.workingbackwards.com. Workingbackwards.com. And again, links will be in the show notes. Bill, Colin, I really appreciate you sharing the information. I have not read through this book yet. I'm very much looking forward to doing that myself and recommend others getting their hands onto it. Amazon is often held up as a organization which does a very good job with what is sometimes called the dual operating system, this ability to innovate while executing well at the same time. And lots of good lessons there, and you both have a long history there. And now you're on to helping others uh, put these into practice. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to The Everyday Innovator, soon to be known as Product Masters Now. This is where product leaders and managers become product masters, gaining practical knowledge, influence, and confidence so you'll create products customers love. Find the written notes, all the details that we discussed with Bill and Colin at theeverydayinnovator.com slash 323. Keep innovating. Thank you for listening to The Everyday Innovator, which teaches product managers to become product masters. For more resources, please visit TheEverydayInnovator.com.